And, and I really appreciate that you would take time out of your day to come and, and talk about and engage in a topic that's really sensitive. I think it's really difficult to talk about reproductive loss and we'll be talking primarily about miscarriage today. And that's because it impacts so many of us in a personal way. Perhaps you've lost siblings to miscarriage or cousins, um, or maybe you yourself um, have. And so I want to be sensitive to that and to know that that can, um, can bring up some painful memories and painful emotions. We'll definitely have some time for questions um, when I get through the comments here today. Just a little bit about, about Life Perspectives. Um, we are headquartered in San Diego, California. So certainly come visit us if you're out that way. Uh, but we work both nationally and internationally. And we have three pillars of care. So one is our reproductive grief care training and education, which is part of this today. And that's where um, shared that we are accredited um, both in the state of California and nationally for both um, social workers, therapists, as well as for nurses. Um, we also, as was mentioned, participate in research. So research that we do in-house at Life Perspectives, but we also collaborate with other institutions um, on um, different topics around this subject um, and have a quarterly research reveals webinar series that we do where we, we have the researchers for newly published um, on the topic of reproductive grief care and get to have kind of a more intimate conversation with them, which I really enjoy doing, um, but people really enjoy participating in that because I think we're often curious, right? Like, well, what motivated you um, to do this particular study? And, and how did you come up with those research questions? And um, you know, what was it like working with the individuals? How did it impact you personally, as well as professionally, um, et cetera? So our next one's coming up in December. You can find those things on our website, lifeperspectives.com. And then our third pillar is healing resources. And so um, we do not see clients. Um, we're training others who do that. But we also recognize that for because of the high levels of um, shame and guilt, and, and it's so stigmatized and silent that sometimes reaching out to a person for help is a little bit too much to do as the first step. And so we developed anonymous healing websites that people can visit. And they can work through um, some different grieving exercises. They can read other people's stories. I'm going to read a few of them for you today. And they can um, write their own story. And then if, when they're ready, they can find some help where they can reach out from there. And we have some printed resources um, as well. But to just give you kind of a little bit of an idea of, of the organization and uh, the privilege that we have of working within this space. So let's, let's first talk about the number of people who are impacted. I think that's always very important to keep in mind. Because there's so much silence, I think that um, you may not be shocked, but I know many people that we talk to are really surprised about uh, the frequency of reproductive or pregnancy loss. So one out, of four one out of four pregnancies will end in miscarriage every year in the United States. That's about a million miscarriages. 
about a million abortions will occur as well each year. About one in 160 pregnancies will end in stillbirth. So stillbirth is 20 weeks or greater. So this is later in a pregnancy. It's estimated about one in eight couples are struggling with infertility right now. And then we talk about other reproductive losses within our training, um, adoption, the grief for the birth families, even adoptive parents, um, those who, um, children who are born with severe disabilities, those who've temporarily or permanently lost custody of their children. Um, for the purpose of today, we're gonna be focusing more on early pregnancy loss, on miscarriage. But so in each of these losses, um, so think of that a million miscarriages every year. And so there's a couple that's involved with that, and then there's their family, and their friends, those in their community. If they're a person of faith, it's a church community's impacted. Um, for those of you who are who are in who are going into the helping profession, you will be impacted as well. And so that's why it really is safe to assume that everybody knows somebody who has suffered a reproductive loss and a miscarriage in particular, even if they have not disclosed that loss to you. I keep that in mind constantly because when the subject of pregnancy, pregnancy losses, miscarriage, I'm always assuming that the people around me probably have some sort of a personal connection. And so we need to be careful and they can kind of tender in how we're communicating around that. So I did, um, before I move on, I definitely want to um, certainly clarify, although I think we all know this, right? I put a lot of different reproductive losses in together, but we know that those losses occurred really differently. But we also know through research that the way that people are impacted is very similar, and the way that they heal is similar, and the obstacles that they have to grieving and healing are similar as well, and that's part of what we'll be touching on today. Um, so everybody is unique. So you may have a million new miscarriages or a couple experiencing that every year, but I think that we all know that we can't just broad brush that. Um, everybody's going to respond differently, but it is also, I think, helpful and important for us to have a little bit of an understanding of what, what that might look like. And so there's a body of research using the perinatal grief scale, so kind of trying to, trying to measure grief which of course is a really difficult thing to do. Um, but in this body of research, they were looking at what they considered to be just kind of three subsets of grief. One would be active grieving, what we stereotypically think of, right? Sadness, crying, missing the baby. Difficulty coping. So now I'm at the point where I'm not just sad, but I'm having difficult, difficulty concentrating. I'm having difficulty going to work. Um, I'm exhausted all the time. Perhaps I want to isolate and I don't want to be around other people. And then feelings of despair. So feeling worthless, feeling hopeless. I think sometimes we wouldn't think of right, those levels of grief when you think of, in particular, in early pregnancy loss. And yet that's exactly what they found. Um, when you look at that body of research, there's a right now about four decades, and this, this scale has been utilized across the world, so it's interesting. It kind of cuts across some of the cultural differences that we may have. 
they um, did not find any correlation between the length and the intensity of the grief reaction and the length of the pregnancy itself, which I think is very counterintuitive. I think that we would assume the farther along that you're in, pregnancy, in the pregnancy, right, the more that you would suffer. And yet they found that that was not the case. There were other mitigating factors and mediators that, that were at play. And I think, again, that kind of helpfulness of not assuming, for us not making that assumption. And so um, sometimes what holds us back is our own judgment. So for someone who perhaps, think of someone who wrote into the website and said, well, you know, I had um, my miscarriage a couple months ago and I'm actually like, I'm feeling okay and we're ready to try again. But I have a friend who it's been a couple years ago and she's completely devastated. What's wrong with me? Like, why am I not upset more? And yet her reaction was her unique reaction in her situation, both of them were. There wasn't anything wrong with the reaction that they had. Um, but they found with, with this, um, so this was a group of female psychologists who put this together. There was an assumption that men would score much lower on the grief scale, but that is not what they found. They scored a little bit lower, but not much. And then even more surprising, what they saw is this trend that there tended to be the grief scores starting to lower for women at about two years, but actually increasing for men at that point in time. There's a lot of theories about why that would be. Perhaps our culture isn't one that is, is very supportive of men grieving and working through the grief process, in particular for reproductive loss. Um, but also, it tends to be very hyper-focused around the loss on the woman, and so the partner is expected to take care of and be strong for that person, which is a beautiful thing to do, but when that role is not needed any longer, right, that's when you start to have kind of bubbling up of other emotions. And you might think of that yourself in other situations where you're both experiencing something, you're strong for the person who's, who's maybe more vulnerable, kind of falling apart, but as they're getting better, you might be in that place um, and who's there to take care of you. There often tends to be a great fear of when somebody is getting better that if we talk about it, we might put them back into that place. So there's a sense of isolation that already is there when it comes to a reproductive loss, but then is really heightened, in particular when it comes to men. Um, and, the, and the attitude around that. Um, and I certainly, I hear that anecdotally, the number of men who have shared um, that you know they have their and their wife they've had a miscarriage or themselves and their girlfriend and they'll start to talk about their experience and then at some point begin to apologize and say well certainly this is nothing compared to my wife and um, and I guess I shouldn't even be you know th this type of thing and I think that's our culture again where where that is his experience, but he hasn't found that support. So some reproductive uh, loss experts, uh, Jaffe and Diamond, also psychologists, have found that, I am so sorry. 
sorry, it's on, it's on mute, but I'm like, I'm getting alerts. Okay, so hopefully that doesn't happen again. Um, so um, again, just trying to give you some basic concepts around reproductive loss that's gonna move into the, the meat of our subject today is that a reproductive loss is really complicated. And I'm not trying to say that other losses can't be complicated, but meaning that we've already talked about that sense of isolation, the dismissal that men um, often uh, experience. In fact, the, the the women who put together the perinatal grief scale, I've seen some papers recently where they've started to wonder, you know, are we even truly capturing um, men's grief? Because this, we as women put this tool together really thinking the tool was for women. We weren't really thinking of the totality even though we had administered to both. So it would be interesting in time, I hope that they kind of take that, that train of thought and maybe do a little bit more. But in addition to that, Jaffe and Diamond, different group of psychologists in their practice have found that as they are seeing people who are experiencing reproductive loss, that in addition to grieving the loss of the child, they also see these themes, that there's this sense that a part of themselves has died along with the child, that there's a loss of hopes and dreams, right? So they had envisioned a future with these children even if they began to envision that children, those children when they were quite young. And then there's a sense of failure at the most basic level. Um, for women, I often hear, my body failed me. What did I do wrong? I'll hear from men, what did I do wrong? Did I not support her? Um, did I create a stressful situation? Um, but there's also, I think, in our culture, the sense that we can produce children on demand, right? So I can have children when I want to and pace them how I want to. And yet that is not what happens. And because of the silence around miscarriage, there's often the sense that I'm the only one. So I see everybody else successfully having babies around me, but I can't do that. Um, so there's that sense of failure that is there. Um, and that the what ifs, and I think you've probably experienced this yourself, maybe with, with something else um, that you dearly wanted to do, right, and it doesn't happen. It's sometimes the what ifs that are the hardest sometimes to grapple with. And we certainly find this with a reproductive loss where there's the what would it have been like? What would my child look like? Um, how would they interact with their siblings? Etc. So um, that the loss of an adult is the loss of the past. The loss of a baby is the loss of the future. So I've been talking about disenfranchised grief, and uh, this is a grief that is not culturally acknowledged. We are not given permission to grieve because it's really a non-event. And certainly there are different types of losses that would fit under a disenfranchised grief, but a miscarriage definitely does. And this is actually a quote underneath it from um, a study by Lang and her colleagues commenting on that, that bereaved parents often find it hard to reconcile their intense feelings with society's lack of validation. 
And not only do we have just a cultural silence, but in when you're having a miscarriage, you will intersect with the medical community. And in the medical community who often does not have any training around how to interact around early pregnancy loss, meaning the grief and loss aspects of it, um, it is often dismissed, ignored, or statements are made that are just are truly not helpful. And so you can imagine they're, we're giving these, I think, unintentional cues to people that are telling them that there's something wrong with themselves if they're actually grieving this child to any extent. Does that make sense? So I think it really comes to the like, am I allowed to grieve? And I think that we sometimes, or at least for me, I can envision that more, that question, in a pregnancy termination or an abortion. Because there's that sense of, well, if I cause the loss, am I actually allowed to grieve? Right? And that, that's a... And, and yes, you are, but that, that's for a different time. But this question absolutely comes up when it comes with miscarriage. We also see um, through a survey that NPR did that there are high levels of guilt and shame that people feel um, when it comes to a miscarriage as well that I don't think, again, that we, we envision that. We don't think that that would be associated, but you can imagine how all of that keeps people bound up in silence. I wanted to read a poem by um, a gentleman who had posted this onto miscarriagehurts.com, because I think he really illustrates this. He says, a loss is something that I never knew. A loss is something that I never knew and the pain that seems to never fade away but how can feelings like this continue if they've never seen the light of day? And is it a loss if it was never mine? How can I miss someone I never met? These feelings can be so hard to define. And so confusion mixes with regret. But was a baby lost so soon alive? And what does that mean for eternity? How can you say that they did not survive when their creation had such brevity? I feel that I will never be the same. Your death carried such cost, babe with no name. And not only is he describing that disenfranchisement, but I think he's also describing the ambiguousness of a reproductive loss. So in this instance, um, they may not even have a sonogram picture, right? We don't have tokens, we don't have memories. Um, that we can hang on to. So it's that absence of the reminders, shared memories of a memorial. And this is where we can really enter in and help. And it kind of comes to this question of who will remember with me? And I want to share with you this short video. Um, actually, my my youngest son, and both my sons are adults, um, he had shared this with me. He had seen it on a chat board. Um, and so if you're familiar with some of the virtual spaces that you can kind of wander around with your avatar and have conversation. And somebody had filmed this and then posted it online. 
like she talked to our tree. And like she even named them, there was Daphne the Lemon Tree, you know, Carl the Pomegranate Tree, Joseph the Oak. Uh, the Oak was bigger than a sapling, but it was still far from a mature tree. And sometimes I would even find her in the backyard having full-blown one-sided conversations with the trees. And one day I told her that, you know, that was talking to trees like that was a little bit weird. And she said that, you know, she said, hey, continuing the conversation where she left off. And sometimes she would even insist that we dress up in our nicest clothing and pose by the trees so she could take pictures of us with like her timer-operated camera. And I always knew she was far from a normal mother, but honestly, all we had was each other, and, and she did give me all the affection a mother could give. But when I moved out from college, I, I made sure to stay close because I really couldn't bear to leave her alone. And I told her this one day, and. She kissed my forehead like lovingly and she told me that it was okay because she had Carl, Daphne, and Joseph to keep her company. As I grew older, I saw less and less of her, you know, like work, friends, and like a love life. Took more of my time. I only got to see her like maybe once every two weeks or so. And uh, one night I was at the bar with my friend actually, and uh, that's when I got the call that mother died. She had a scribble can. Our neighbor spotted her through the fence for all the ground by the trees. And uh, like a few a few days later, the funerals happened, and only a few family members and friends showed up. But that was fine. It was always mostly just me and her, like I said. And uh, she was cremated shortly after the ceremony, and I, I took her home with me. And uh, in their will, she only had one request of me, and that was that I continue to take care of them, talk to the trees. And I mean, I took care of them for sure, but I really couldn't bring myself to talk to plant life, you know. And. Um, one day I finally got the courage to go like through her stuff in her room and I put an envelope in her desk with cash papers inside. And I looked through them and I was I was pretty shook at what I found. Um there were three still point death certificates for a baby Joseph, baby Carlin, and baby Daphne. And like I had never known that they had siblings and I'd never seen any urns before, but that day I understood where she had buried her remains, and I understood why she spoke to the trees. And uh, yeah, ever since I take her last wish very seriously, and I talked to the trees. And recently, I actually even planted a new one for my mother. I don't know about you, but I was really moved um, when I saw that video, and somebody talking about that. And then also just thinking that his mother didn't feel like she could ever tell him that information. And that's not uncommon. So for parents to carry that with them um, and yet have that desire, they don't want their children to be forgotten. But we see that in research, that one of the obstacles that keeps people from really adjusting to that loss is the fear that their children will be forgotten, right? But that's where we can remember with others. I'm only gonna spend a moment on this just to help conceptualize understanding of the concepts we went through, um, but grieving is, is a process of tasks um, that really doesn't end, but we adjust over time. 
And so with accepting the reality of the loss, processing the pain and the grief, and adjusting to the world without that person, you can imagine how difficult that would be if your loss isn't even acknowledged. Right? Grieving is individual, but grieving is communal as well. And then when your loss is ambiguous, finding that enduring connection that allows you to move forward is very difficult to do. Dr. Doka says that grief is the price you pay for love, but how you grieve is not necessarily a measure of that love. So again, keeping in mind that people are going to grieve very differently and that their, their grieving styles are different. So there really isn't a right or wrong way, there isn't a set timeline, and they aren't shoulds. And I'm sharing this with you because as you prepare yourself to accompany others in grief, it's important to keep that in mind, or we can get in our way of actually helping others with that process. And so I really want to then spend the, my last few moments of presentation talking about how we can accompany others and what we can do to help them remember so that we have some time for questions with all of you. So um, we would call this setting the stage for healthy grieving, um, if you will, so that you don't have people who are hanging on in an unhealthy way to their pain or their guilt or their fear. And so being able to acknowledge that loss, we've been talking about that this whole time. So when you know that somebody has had a loss through miscarriage or another reproductive loss, to say, I am so sorry for your loss. And I know that sounds really simplistic, but you will be surprised at when you do that, the people who will say that you are the first person who has ever said that to them. There's something so interesting, something you would say if you had learned about any other loss, right? You would, you would, that's what you would say. But we don't think of doing that when it comes to a reproductive loss. And so acknowledging that. We're giving them permission to grieve. We're telling them that it's important um, and that we are sad about the loss of their child. If we're able to um, normalize, if you will, which means really listening, of course, that's the biggest gift that we can give, right? So you're present with someone and the listening can be to their words or the listening could be to just your sitting there together in silence or maybe you're doing things. Sometimes people like to walk or work on a project together. Um, but as we, as we are sitting there, we're giving them that opportunity. First, they know that we're with them. But if they do have something to say, that we're there to listen, which is allowing them to process the pain it's allowing them to make sense of the experience. And we really need to do that. When we have an experience like that, it takes time to adjust. Um, and then letting them know that they're, whatever they're saying, right, it's normal. So grief is a normal reaction to loss, right? And we've lost someone that we love, that's a normal thing to do and that there isn't a set timeline. People do often get worried, just like I shared earlier, well, has it been too short a time and I'm feeling okay, or has it been too long a time and I should be in a different place? Everyone has their unique rhythm that they move through in grief. Now, we can get stuck, um, and if we get stuck, then that needs some additional attention. 
Um, but in this instance, we're assuming that they're moving through that, but you're also helping them, right? You're acknowledging the loss, and then um, you're also helping them with that ambiguous nature and letting them know they're not alone. And then providing some tokens of remembrance I'll give you some examples. But I think everybody wants to know, like, what do I say? What do I say? No, I do, I can give you some suggestions here, but know that your presence is much more important than any words that you will ever say. And it is okay to say something awkward or that's not even received well, because if you're in relationship, you can repair that. You can see how people react um, and to let them know, right, your intention is just for them to know that you're there for them, you care for them. But saying things like, I'm so sorry. Now, do be careful if they're not describing this to you as a loss, but just maybe more as a traumatic experience. I wouldn't necessarily say, I'm so sorry for your loss. We don't want to put words in their mouth. Um, but certainly saying, I'm so sorry, you're not alone. Asking them how they're doing, and not just then, but asking them times after that, whether it's through text or a phone call or when you're together, and really wanting the answer, not the answer that we all expect to write, I'm fine, but like really being there, how are you doing? And then whatever they're telling you to say, it's okay. It's okay to cry. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be numb. It's okay to not feel anything at all. Sometimes our own fears get in the way. We don't want to make it worse. Or we think of the time where we ask someone how they're doing or we said they're sorry and they burst into tears. Or we hear a bit of like an, an, an angry tirade go on and we think we caused it. We did not cause it. What we did is we gave that person the gift of expressing what was already there and allowing a space for that to come out for them. So I know it can be uncomfortable, I know it can be intimidating, but please for you, take confidence and comfort in that, um, that that is actually a gift that you're giving to them. Um, of course, letting them know that everyone grieves differently and that's an important thing for them to know because perhaps their, their spouse or somebody else in their family is grieving in a very different way and they find that to be hurtful. So sometimes we think that the way we're grieving is what we then project and expect other people to be doing. So if I'm crying a lot and then I'm seeing that my husband seems to just be going along with his day, I can make some assumptions that he's not grieving or doesn't care, right, at all. When the truth may be that he doesn't want to upset me, right? So he's not allowing me to see that. The number of guys who have said they would hold it in until they were in their car, that's when they would let their grief come out because they didn't want to upset the other person. So it's a beautiful gift, but sometimes we think it's the opposite. Or maybe they just work through grief differently. Some people cry, some people do things. So if you're familiar with the styles of grieving, right, some are that intuitive emotive, and other people instrumental. Um, we need to actually be doing things physically with our mind. 
Um, and then asking them if they, you can give them resources. The website's a great one. So you may not be available at two in the morning, but the website, miscarriagehurts.com, where I read that story, is available. Or maybe there's another resource that you can help them define in their community. And then what can we do? Right? Always displaying empathy and compassion making sure that you're always including the partner and maybe the whole family if there are more family members. Sending a sympathy card. Again, that sounds like a simplistic thing, and yet you still can't go to Hallmark and get a sympathy card for loss after miscarriage. So you have to be a little bit creative in doing that, but those cards are incredibly meaningful. That's part of how you're not only acknowledging the loss, but you're giving them then actually a memorial item. You're saying that you remember with them. So this wouldn't always be the case, but I can give you an example in, in my family when my sister-in-law lost her first child, and this was 20, almost 25 years ago now. And so I had a hard time finding a card, but I finally found something online that was appropriate and I sent it to her. She called me 20 years later to thank me for that card and said I was the only person who sent her one. Now our family is a loving, supportive family, but we just don't think to do it. And apparently her friends didn't either. But she, she held on to that. She kept it. It was the only physical thing that she had that connected her with her child and also knowing that someone was thinking of her. Discuss remembrance if it's appropriate. Um, so this is going to depend on the situation, and I'm going to talk about some specific things on remembrance. But definitely check in from time to time. Right, so check in a week later, a month later, six months later, around the anniversary, again, I think people will say, well, maybe they've forgotten about it and I shouldn't bring it up. I can assure you they haven't forgotten about it. So for you to reach out and just gently say, you know, I've been thinking about you. I know you're coming up on an anniversary. This might be a hard time. I'm here for you. That's very significant um, for them, which is also reaching out on those anniversaries. Dr. Doken, his book on grief is a journey, also talks about ritual. Rituals exist in the sacred space between the conscious and the unconscious, affecting us in deeply emotional ways. So I think here um, at Franciscan, you are all very aware of that, um, of how that happens, but keep that in mind when it comes to a reproductive loss. So again, some, some specifics on memorialization. So if we're at the time of the loss, to ask if they would like to have a funeral or a memorial service or a mass said, um, it's likely that no one has suggested that to them. And if they have never seen that happen in their parish, you just don't think it's an option. And so it's something that you can suggest, something you may even want to talk about within your congregation or your parish. Is there a way to let others know that this is something available for them? If the loss was some time ago, right, we're not too late to do a service. So certainly you can always have mass said for their child and for them. But in addition to it, I know that there are some parishes who are beginning to have 
um, either quarterly or annually, they will have a special mass for anyone who's lost a child before birth. And it becomes a communal way to come together. And so people will come, and sometimes that loss was last month or 10 years or 40 years ago. But it allows that ability to do it. Again, if it's appropriate, and if you're at that time when the loss is occurring, to inquire if they had thought of what they were going to be doing with the remains. Again, unfortunately, this is often something that is not only brought up, but it's kind of assumed within the hospital setting that they don't want their remains or they don't have a policy um, on it. And you could imagine how difficult this is, not, not necessarily at the time because this is unexpected, you feel out of control, you're overwhelmed with everything that's happening, so you're not thinking about this. But if you're sent home and they complete the miscarriage at home with no preparation, with no way to retrieve the remains. Um, we will certainly see people who say who have great regret and guilt that they flush the toilet, right? Um, or if that miscarriage occurred at the hospital, they'd wonder in later years what happened to my baby. How did they dispose of the remains? Did they do it in a dignified fashion? Some hospitals have good policies on that. Others, this is considered medical waste, and that's how it's disposed. So the grief and the trauma that accompanies, often accompanies a miscarriage, right? We can't erase that. But there are things that we can do to not make it more traumatic and to try to help facilitate that grieving process. So talking about burying the remains. Um, thinking of things like, um, you know, Memorial Garden, maybe you have a place um, at your parish or in the community where there's a garden or a fountain or a statue, right, a special place so that if maybe the miscarriage was so early there wasn't, you know, I, didn't ha I wasn't able to bury the remains or it was years ago. Well, if there's a place, a physical place that I can go, I know you have one on campus here. Um, and so offering that becomes very meaningful as well. We are, of course, planting a tree. Um, so we saw that in the video, but that's something common um, that people will like to do is to plant a tree in honor of their child. And then you can offer them a token, right? So we, we have um, forget-me-not, pins is something we offer. But, um, but jewelry, you know, bracelets can be for men or for women, you know, or, or a medal, um, you know, if they're of, of a saint that would be meaningful for them. So just providing them something or, or a small statue. I think of a grandparents who, for them, as they were coming more to terms with the loss, um, you know, they brought the, the statue where you have the unborn child in, in the hands of Jesus, and they put that into their garden. And so for them, that's always this visible reminder, a sweet reminder of remembering their grandchild, but it also means that when their son and daughter-in-law come, they can see that too. This is a member of our family that we remember together. And you can get, of course, as creative um, as you would like to be. And it will be different for every person, what will be meaningful for them. But the important thing to do is to provide something and to say that I remember, that I remember your children with you. 
And so that's something often that when I'm communicating with people that I will say that to them, just saying that I'm so sorry for their loss, inquiring how they're doing, giving them whatever time that they want to speak or not to speak, is to, if they definitely have considered this a loss, you know, I do let them know that, you know, like I'm remembering you and I'm remembering your children with you. Mm -hmm.